Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody wants to rock the boat. It's all bullshit, folks. It's all bullshit, and it's bad for you. But we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children. Children should be taught to question everything, to question everything they read, everything they hear. You're listening to Question Culture History Edition with Brian, Steve, and Larnett. On these special History Edition episodes, we discuss American history using Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States as our guide. On this episode, we'll be discussing Chapter 11, Robber Barons and Rebels. How's it going, Lornette? How's it going, Steve? Uh, hey guys. Oh, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, good to be back. It's been a while. I don't know what you guys have been up to, but this is the first history we've done in how long? I don't know. Yeah, it's been quite a while. How's it going, Larnette? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, welcome back, Steve. Uh, hello, Brian. I know we've been on and off for a while because of traveling and stuff like that, so it's good to be recording again and putting a whole new episode out. Um, and as always, you can follow me at the Evolving Man Project, my personal website. You can also follow me at Evolving Man LBB on Twitter. You can check out Lornette Vestal on Facebook. And um, also, if you want some fall reading, because we're getting to be fall, because I, I know how we like to do after Labor Day. It's, it's like, screw. Summer doesn't enter the 21st of September. They're like, pumpkin spice latte already, goddammit, and Halloween. Um, and as a fan of Halloween, I like it. Um, and I watch horror movies during October. Only time I really watch shitty horror movies. But anyway, if you want a fall reading, check out um, that uh, Faders and Alpha series. Uh, written by myself and my lovely wife, Renita Haynes, who was a guest on our uh, Supreme Court episode uh, that you can listen to now on Anchor Podcast or anywhere podcasts are streamed. Uh, you can check out Even the Faders and I and Alphys. But let's get into some history. Awesome. Um, so this chapter, I think we were talking about before we started recording how it <laughs> this whole book kind of relates, you know, history rhymes. Um so it all kind of relates to modern day, but I feel like this uh, chapter specifically, really, you see echoes of it today. Um, so I'm excited to get into it. Um, and I think we should just start with the first paragraph he has in the chapter. Um, he writes, in the year 1877, the signals were given for the rest of the century. The blacks would be put back. The strike of white workers would not be tolerated. The industrial and political elites of North and South would take hold of the country and organize the greatest march of economic growth in human history. They would do it with the aid of and at the expense of black labor, white labor, Chinese labor, European immigrant labor, female labor, rewarding them differently by race, sex, nationality, national origin, and social class in such a way to create separate levels of oppression, a skillful terracing to stabilize the pyramid of wealth. And don't forget child labor. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Hey, as our libertarians would say, those children are just doing stupid dances on TikToks and eating Tide Pods. They need to learn hard work. So let's put them back in mind. All right. If you're old enough to walk, you're old enough to work. <laughs> and I think that's very telling because he kind of goes through all the, you know, everyone, every different category will be used for their labor. And then that's really in the, in the eyes of like the capitalist class. That's all that's all they need out of us. That's all that we're useful for. But then we're rewarded in different ways to create this division amongst ourselves and to keep us divided and fighting amongst each other so we're fine with the capitalist class running off and stealing all the money. 
So, I, and, you know, obviously that's still going on perfectly today. I mean, you see with the student loan debt forgiveness, how like as soon as that happened, you know, there were a bunch of people on the right who were all, you know, I don't want to pay for somebody else's. So like, even though people are getting completely screwed over by the system and the school, you know, and it's schooling shouldn't be that expensive in the first place. The moment you try and like give anything to a group, you know, they're, oh my God, and people are attacking it. How? How big was that student loan thing? Oh my god, it was like a drop in the bubble. Oh yeah, he it's was only- like it was like ten thousand dollars, and his means tested like a motherfucker when they could just wipe it all out. And and I know how like when the Democrats lose the uh, uh, midterms this upcoming November, they'll blame the leftists and the Bernie Bros and and all this shit. When Biden is just a terrible, terrible president, and these half-ass measures are just a half-ass measure. And like, cause it's like, oh, you can't do this because the Republicans are going to be so bad. Yeah, whatever. They they never have this debates when it's time to like fund the war. And as we read in this chapter, um, <laughs> they've always came together, both parties, <laughs> to ensure that the rich get richer and the poor get completely fleeced. And then sometimes they even send in the National Guard and police to quash those pesky worker rebellions. Mm-hmm. Seems like very, you know, and, and you know, it's so funny. History keeps repeating itself because when the uh, Amazon warehouse workers are organizing in Alabama this summer, um, guess who uh, were harassing them? The Alabama, Alabama state police. <laughs> so the cops has just always been on the wrong side of history. Has the National Guard been called in to deal with like protests in a while? They, I remember they were kind of like parked around in trucks and stuff during like the Black Lives Matter protests, but yeah, they were. The twenty twenty was like then, the last time. Yeah, and the then of course during the sixties when they like legit shot people at Kent State. Yeah. Well, were they at uh, were they at Standing Rock? Uh, I I don't know if just the, the share. That's a good question. I mean, I think I they were. I think there were some National Guards well, there. But the I know funny part is the police are so goddamn militarized that it's hard to tell the difference anymore. <laughs> exactly. You don't That's know true. Because there That's were definitely true. like tanks and shit at Standing Rock. I don't but know. But we know that tanks. police departments have tanks because we yeah. can't defund the police. We have to give them fucking jets. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they're going <laughs> to fucking bomb nuts. their own own citizens. Oh, we've already done that. Do <laughs> <laughs> that plenty of times. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then there was another cool quote that he had. Steve, do you want to read that one? Kind of summarize. Yeah, I'll read this one. Right. I think I remember reading this one in our first podcast because I liked how it sort of illustrated how you gotta pretty much fool everyone to play along in the system. But uh, control in modern times requires more than force, more than law. It requires that a population dangerously concentrated in cities and factories whose lives are filled with cause for rebellion, be taught that all is right as is. And so, the schools, the churches, the popular literature taught that to be rich was a sign of superiority, to be poor a sign of personal failure, and that the only way upward for a poor person was to climb in the ranks of the rich by extraordinary effort and extraordinary luck. And I think that idea has worked so well in this country and it's honestly like the main source of my apathy is how just fucking like bootlicker so much of the population is and like like you see it like if like when a billionaire tweets something on twitter and just all these stands for them like on their account just like 
you know, if you like criticize them at all, oh my God, like, don't, you know, you can't criticize this rich person. They're amazing. They're so inventive. Like, especially with like Elon Musk. And it's like, he's, he's like portrayed as like this Iron Man figure, but all he did was he's just Edison. He just used his daddy's emerald mine, mine money from apartheid South Africa to buy up businesses. So like, I guess you could argue, okay, he's good at buying up the right businesses, but it's like, Ooh, good job. You're so cool. You know, like. Like what a right, and, and I like how Howard Zan points out, like at the be- at the beginning of this chapter, like this whole mythology of the self-made, uh, well, at that time millionaire at the turn of the last century, but now we would say self-made billionaire. It's the same mythology where, like, oh yeah, they came from. There are people who are alert on Twitter and in real life who will be like, well, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos came from nothing, and they were born with silver spoons in their mouth. Very few people are Oprah Winfrey. That's like. A small percentage of the elites. Most of them are just assholes who have generations of wealth or come from pretty staunchly upper middle class um, mm-hmm. backgrounds. And, or in, in this country, specifically bootlicking, um, the queen is dead. And we've seen in our Ooh. media, I know. Oh no, the queen is dead. Oh, <laughs> who <no>. said that? <laughs> oh no, oh my God, I'm, I'm burning. It's so hot here. Oh my God, it's so hot here. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. I, can I bite my way in heaven? No, you can't. <laughs> oh, it's all the the, the, the fucking the British Empire. They, 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 all the fucking monarchs should burn in hell if hell existed. Um, because all their wealth comes from the back of exploited people and slaves. And land they stole from indigenous peoples the world over. Um, so may she rest in uh, piss. And But the thing is, we've seen bootlickers of the queen. with Americans, I really think that Disney has fooled Americans because that's how stupid people <laughs> that's are. That's how people get their reality. They think, they think that they're benevolent yeah. queens, and king, queen, kings and queens out there and that they were ruled with a fair and kind heart. And it's like the French and the Russians of the Europeans had it right when they what they did to their monarchs, which is mm-hmm. chop off their fucking heads. Mm-hmm. And we exactly. can see that the United States is definitely the bastard child of the UK because we worship politicians like they're fucking monarchs. And we should be like, if y'all fuck up, y'all can lose your heads. But you say that you're a radical (laughs) and you might go to jail. It's interesting to me how like the propaganda of a country, how you, you know, anything another country does is like exposed, but anything your country or like an ally does is like swept under Mm -hmm. the rug. So like, you know, I remember in high school, we learned about like the Nazis in World War Two, but we didn't learn about the British Empire with India and Kenya and all the fucking genocides and all the limbs they were chopping off and all the people they were killing, you know. So it's just funny how that works. And then and then people get mad at you when you attack the queen as if these aren't people who literally went around the world chopping off limbs, killing people and stealing all their shit. And it's like, why would you hate on the little old queen? She's so mm, sophisticated. And and her wealth comes off the back of thousands, if not millions, well, millions of dead, like Africans, Asians, Pacific Islanders. And and to be honest, her ass is old as shit. So when when a lot of these uh, former colonies of the the British Empire were breaking breaking free from their colonial masters, even though they did like all fucked up, like, you know, IMF loans and business loans were like, you get your independence, but you got all those reparations. Like, like the fact mm-hmm. that like, Yes, that we that these countries had to pay reparations to their former colonial masters. So it's absolute bullshit. So I don't feel sorry for her. First off, she's old as shit. She's like ninety six. So it's like that. What happens to old people? 
if you if you live that if you're lucky to live that long. And she was of course the she evil lived that ones long. always live long. Yeah, the evil I ones know. always live the long. Like look at Dick Cheney and Henry Kissinger. Those fucks are still around. And we don't have Chad with Bozeman and Prince and David Bowie. I hope I hope Henry Kissinger's next. Come on. Come on. Well, Ken Starr did croak. Henry Kissinger is the uh, voice of peace nowadays. That's how crazy we've gotten. I know. Um, Who was that that food critic that everybody loved that died? Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, Anthony Bourdain has a cool quote where he's like, if you've been to Cambodia, then it's impossible not to want to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. (laughs) Exactly. And speaking speaking of Cambodia, I did have a, I'll never forget this conversation. Because my good friend Austin, may he rest in peace, um, he was a uh, grad student at Northern Illinois University. He's doing, uh, I believe, philosophy, and he had some um, exchange students, and I believe they were from Cambodia. And it was like three of them who were just like hanging out with me and Austin. And like they said this very casually, kind of just like how, you know, when I was little, I would go to like the corner store and just walk down the street, and there you go, you can go to the store and get like yourself a fucking piece of candy or something like that. And they, they were talking about this story. In the same manner as I just talked about me walking to the candy store. It's like, oh, when we were little and we used to swim in the craters. And obviously, since I know about U.S. history and our foreign policy towards Central Asia uh, during the 1960s and 70s, a whole long time, they were talking about fucking craters from bombs and that they were swimming them as little kids because that's how fucking many bombs we dropped on those countries to stop the spread of communism. But um, I think we're getting off the point of the history chapter. So let's go back to that. <laughs> yeah, so I just did want to read, because you're absolutely right about this myth that we have about rich people earning their wealth. Um, and what Howard Zinn says, he writes, uh, while, our multi- while some multimillionaires started in poverty, most did not. A study of the origins of 303 textile, railroad, and steel executives of the 1870s showed that 90% came from middle or upper class families. Um, the rags to riches story um, was true for a few men, but mostly a myth and a very useful myth indeed. Um, yeah, and, so yeah, and you're spot on. Yeah, and I, and no, dude, you're right on with that. And I do like the um, the the this guy named Russell Conwell, who's like uh, was one of those, I guess, motivational speakers like a, over like you know well over a century ago, and a whole same thing that they sell us today about like you just work hard, you get rich. And here's a uh, sampling from his uh, lecture that he gave across the country called Anchors of Diamonds. I say that you ought to get rich. It is your duty to get rich. The men who get rich may be the most honest men you find in the community. Let me say here clearly, 98 out of 100 rich men in America are honest. That is why they are rich. That is why they are trusted with money. That is why they carry a going great enterprises and find plenty of people to work for them. It is because they are honest men. <laughs> I sympathize with the poor, but the number of poor who are to be sympathized with is very small. To sympathize with a man whom God has punished for his sins is to do wrong. Let us remind, let us remember there is not a poor person in the United States who is not made poor by his own shortcomings. So, I mean, this is the same rhetoric that we he see nowadays um, manifested in the United States. Like people who are, you know, struggling or poor. Like, I've seen people look at, like, all oh, these homeless people, they're just homeless because they're just lazy and they don't want to get jobs. And, and it's like, you never know those people's stories if you never talked to a homeless person, had a conversation with them, um, worked at a soup kitchen. Um, I've done these things. Uh, and at the end of the day, a lot of the folks are just people who end up, you know, falling on hard times. And, it, it, and it, to make it an individual feeling, lets the system off the hook because 
we have 500,000 people every night on the streets, uh, homeless. And a good portion of those folks are veterans. And if it makes it a moral failing, it's just their fault that they're all poor. So this is the same social Darwinistic rhetoric that's been going on for centuries in this country. And and, and that quote that you just read kind of reminds me, too, of the same thing with uh, Nixon, how like he's claiming, you know, if the president does it, it can't be illegal. And like similarly, if the if, if the rich people do it, it must be like virtuous and good. And it's funny because the rich people make the rules, so they make the rules to fit them. So, of course, it's, it's virtuous, to, you know, to, according to them. And Howard Zinn wrote about this. He writes, um, most of the fortune building was done legally with the co- collaboration of the government and the courts. Sometimes the collaboration had to be paid for. Thomas Edison promised New Jersey politicians $1,000 each in return for favorable legislation. Daniel Drew and Jay Gould spent $1 million to bribe New York legislators to legalize their issue of $8 million in watered stock on the on the Erie Railroad. So it's literally like everything we're doing is, is legal, you know, and it's just because they literally paid off everyone to make it legal. <laughs> Where it, it totally wouldn't be legal except you had the money to pay everyone off. That quote that you read about the guy going around the country giving that speech to everyone, that also reminded me of, like, the campaign they did to, like, turn everybody into consumers. You know what I mean? Like, how they, they like, you know, constantly telling everyone you have to go out and buy things and, like, you know, buy as many things as you can. Like, that was, like, a intentional, like, advertising campaign, like, propaganda machine that they did to, like, turn people into consumers. I, I remember thinking that after... For those of you that are old enough that remember 9-11, because I know that's becoming like a distant historical event now, and a lot of people now uh, weren't even alive for that. But I remember even, you know, at the time I was 15, freshman in high school, I was not very socially aware or conscious. But I even remember being, because it was like the next day, George Bush like went on TV and was like, all right, now make make sure you keep shopping and go into the <laughs> mall and to the stores. And I even at the time, I remember being like, wow, that's like... A really weird thing to to say. Yeah, after but fucking like, the country was attacked, it was just like, yeah, go shop. Yeah, <laughs> buy yeah, burgers, like, fruit and fries. Yeah, goddammit. Yeah, it's like what? But a court. But now you know, seeing it from a capitalist perspective, you know, nothing, nothing can stop capitalism, whether it be a, a terrorist attack or or a plague or anything. You know, we need to keep keep buying shit so the owners keep making their money. <laughs> exactly. Fuck COVID. You, if you, the, your mom, grandpa will risk, and grandma will risk their life. To keep the economy open, all right. We got to keep these rich people rich. God damn it, go die, grandma. Uh, yeah. At the terrorist attack, uh, fuck, go shopping, go buy shit, get McDonald's. It's also the reason they're attacking abortion rights right now because they want people for labor, and also they want people to buy their stupid shit. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see Elon Musk put out a video that um, the declining birth rates is a greater threat to civilization than climate change? He oh, they tweeted that out. out. No, he well, yeah, he said it in like a video, in like an interview, like without an, a hint of irony. And it's oh, like, yeah, no, Elon Musk is like terrible. He's one of my least favorite person in existence, I would say. Yeah, and it's, and it's just like he's he's just showing his hand. It's like wow, and and to be that rich and still crave profit that bad. We were like, yeah, fuck destroying the whole world. Like as long as we just need more and more people, so I can keep selling my electric cars. You know, it's. It's just so telling, but it's just, like, so fucking wild that, I don't know, kind of your belief system can, like, blind you to reality that bad. To even, like, say something like that and not laugh hysterically is just, like, unbelievable. 
But um, speaking of other rich assholes, um, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about our man, J.P. Morgan Chase. Nice segue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been recording a podcast for over two years now. Um, we're professionals. <laughs> Um, but so, you know, as I'm sure most of the country, uh, uh, you know, knows Chase Bank, um, but probably most of the country doesn't know how evil the motherfucker was that started the whole thing. Um, so, um, Howard Zinn writes about him. J.P. Morgan had, had started before the Civil War as the son of a banker who began selling stocks for the railroads for good commissions. During the Civil War, he bought 5,000 rifles for $3.50 each from an army arsenal and then sold them to, in the general field for $22 each. The rifles were defective and would shoot off the thumbs of the soldiers using them. A congressional committee noted that this noted this in the small print of an obscure report, but a federal judge upheld the deal as the fulfillment of a valid legal contract. Morgan had escaped military service in the Civil War by paying $300 for a substitute. So did John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Philip R. Moore, Jay Gould, and James Mellon. Mellon's father had written to him that a man may be a patriot, patriot without risking his own life or sacrificing his health. There are plenty of lives less valuable. So we call that pulling a Trump. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just funny how they, you know, like, oh, let those poor, you know, be used as cannon fodder. That's oh, yeah, let the, let the poor die. Mm-hmm. Sounds like, sounds I, wonder like which, uh, I wonder which side he sold the defective rifles to. Yeah, he buys all the all sides. Right? He's a captain. Yeah, exactly. Both, uh, yeah, like a true banker. You know, banker. <laughs> yeah, you know, bankers got to have both sides paid off. Um, uh, yeah, but it's so. I it's like, well, I can't, I can't join the military because I might blow off a thumb with one of those faulty rifles I gave everybody. And, and I'm rich. I, you know, it's kind of like when Mitt Romney they asked him when he was running for president why it wasn't any of his sons fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan, and he's like, well, they have to help me uh, run my campaign. Um, and, and what he really wanted to say is like um, they're not poor, so um, duh. And hence why Biden won't forget student loan and make public college and universities free um, and trade schools because then you won't have to, you know, then one of the military's great selling points to you know people struggling, uh, free college, <laughs> free healthcare, <laughs> place to live, <laughs> basic necessities, basically. Um, you know, yeah, well. They have people report the poor won't join and fight the wars for uh, the rich people. But don't worry. I mean, Brian, the wars are, to, and Brian and Steve, they're to keep us safe. Yeah. <laughs> and one of my favorite things happened recently is how, um, like, generals and stuff are starting complaining that children are getting too fat to serve in the, <laughs> in the military. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fucking awesome. Like, you, br- you know, you, you turn us all into consumers and we're getting so good at consuming right now there's not enough people to protect your shit for you exactly oh man um but also at this time we have an insane consolidation of wealth and that's kind of you know the 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 chapter is called robber barons that's really um how these people started to gain you know the insane amounts of wealth that they did was combining industries um Howard Zinn writes, um, he being J.P. Morgan, linked railroads to one another, all of them to banks, banks to insurance companies. By 1900, he controlled 100,000 miles of railroad, half the country's mileage. Three insurance companies dominated by the Morgan Group had billion dollars in assets. They had $50 million a year to invest money given by ordinary people for their insurance policies. And 
I think that's what a lot of American citizens miss is like when they think of rich people, they're like, oh, you know, you owned a plumbing business and now you have a lot of money. But like these uber wealthy people like Jeff Bezos has contracts with the CIA and like it sits on the board of several different industries. Like you don't get to be that insanely wealthy by owning just one company. You literally have control. And that's why rich people have so much power over society is because they control so many different industries. So they control so many different aspects of our lives. And then continuing about J.P. Morgan, um, Morgan then formed the U.S. Steel Corporation, combining Carnegie's corporations with others. He sold stocks and bonds for $1.3 billion. Um, and took a fee of $150 million for arranging the consolidation. How could dividends be paid to all those stockholders and bondholders? By making sure Congress passed tariffs keeping out foreign steel, by closing off competition and maintenance, maintaining the price at $28 a ton, and by working 200,000 men 12 hours a day for wages that barely kept their families alive. And... That's another thing that I think people need to keep in mind with rich people is you don't get that. Those people that are insanely wealthy, you don't get that way unless you are stealing wages from your workers and and not paying them properly. If you pay your workers properly, it, it's not possible to make that much money. And I, I also thought that was interesting, like with the whole rifle thing, like, all right, he, he bought them for $3.50. He could have been a, a good capitalist and sold them for $5, $6, just take a little bit of profit. But no, 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 $22. Like, we're going to jack up the prices. <laughs> you know, it's like people selling insulin now, where, like, you go to, you know, Canada, it's like 10 bucks or something here. It's like $300. It's just absolutely insane. That's that's the free market working, Brian. Um, mm-hmm. and, that's, oh, exactly. and if those rifles blow off the fucking hands of soldiers, then, well, you know. Buyer beware. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's their fault. Well, and that's exactly why I hate the system because, you know, and that's why I don't believe in like, you know, like direct violence against people because, yeah, you could go kill that one person, but the system creates people like this and it incentivizes all people in that way. We're all trying to make as much money. You know, I hate capitalism as much as the next guy, but I'm going to damn well keep my paycheck because I need it to survive. So this whole system turns us into monsters. To ev- turns everyone into monsters because it's all just this money grab and if you you know you're incentivized to do it and the you know the more you do it oh you know there's no law against it like great keep keep going you know keep raping the earth um you know keep fracking and stuff do whatever you can to make that money you know n- you know not nothing else matters in the capitalist system but making that profit yeah and, and the crazy thing about this is you know a lot of this this chapter uh, parallels to today even when we talk about when we get into the um labor organizing and, and then kind of like the, um, the, how the little people fought back. Um, but the, 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 the saddest thing is thinking about it on a perspective of like humans had all this potential and we instead decided to create a society where we organize um, millions, if not well billions of humans around to benefit a small elite cadre of a few humans to live like fucking basically gods or something while the rest of us toil at work <laughs> and then you work until you die. Um, but you know, you, you all benefit the economy and it's like the earth provided everything we needed. And we decided like, you know what we need to do? We need to pay people. We need to create this system of money and capitalism. And only a few people have all the money, most of the money and everybody else is struggling to get there. And then we'll tell them to be like us and they'll be good. Um, but very few people will make it to this tippy top. Um, and it's just a rat race when we can just be fucking chilling. That's why I think it's important. Everyone to, listening to this podcast, 
take your vacation days, take time off. Even if you're not sick, if you're just not feeling that that, that day, take the day off, go visit a friend, go visit a family member or something, because it's, it's not like, what was I, I was, I saw somebody was writing on Twitter about how like, you know, the average age of retirement is like 65 to 70, but then the average age of death is like 70 to 75. So if you do everything right and play by the rules, you'll have like five years of being an, a senior citizen who can like, you know, starting to get to like where you can barely walk. And that's like, you know, your free time that you're given. So it's like, fuck that. These companies, they need you. Always remember, they need you more than you need them. Um, you know, you're you're a uh, an intelligent, you know, fucking working human being. You'll find some ways to make end meet like you always have. So fuck these companies. They need you more than um, you need them. Um, yeah, spend all your money, do all your traveling when you're young, and then when you're old, you can, like, give your life for the cause, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't have anything left to lose. You're going to die soon anyway. <laughs> um, I also like how he um, talks about in this chapter, I just want to read one paragraph where he talks about the link between business and government and kind of that revolving door. Um, because even though that has gotten worse in recent decades, it's always been the case in this country. Um, Howard Zinn writes, one of uh, President Cleveland's chief advisors was William Whitney, a millionaire and corporate lawyer who married into the Standard Oil fortune and who was appointed Secretary of the Navy by Cleveland. He immediately set about to create a steel navy, buying the steel at artificially high prices from Carnegie's plants. Cleveland himself assured industrialists that his election should not frighten them. Quote, no harm shall come to any business interests as a result of administrative policies so long as I am president's. president. A transfer of, of executive control from one party to another does not mean any serious disturbance of existing conditions. So it's funny how these politicians are real honest when they're talking to um, leaders of industry. Um and kind of this revolving door. And that's how it, it always is, is people work in high levels of industry. Then they go work for the government to make sure the industry gets paid. Then that, then once they're done serving in public office, they go back to the private industry, make even more money for like speaking fees and shit like Obama did. Um, so it's just, you know, same shit, different day. Oh, yeah. And, and that whole uh, quote from uh, Grover Cleveland um, about like kind of like you, you rich people have nothing to worry about. It, it sounds the thing that Biden when people criticized him um, when he was talking to you, leaders of industry, and he was basically was like, oh, nothing will fundamentally change. He's <laughs> like, like, I'm not going to tax you more. You guys, we're going to keep this party going like we've been doing since uh, 1776. So you're all good. And he's right. Nothing will fundamentally change. In fact, he's, he started more proxy wars to keep that military industrial complex going and funding the police more. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> The great liberals to save us all. I was interested interested in that that recent evolution of war. So you kind of had, you know, we used to be a lot more sending troops and like, you know, full-blown battalions to go things. But then they realized during the Vietnam War that that wasn't really working so well. So they started, you know, um, just using drones and using doing proxy wars with uh, um, 
economic hitman and thing, things like that. And now it seems like because they have such control over the media, it really seems like since Iraq, you know, it worked out. All the all the people who wanted money got their money, but they it didn't look good. So now it seems that they're like even now that they have such control over the media, they really just it's a complete blackout. And it's hard for regular working people to find out what's going on at all. Because, you know, I'm learning more and more. We have all these these troops and operations going on in Africa. You never hear even remotely hear about that shit anymore. So like now it's like because they've, you know, gathered so much control of these industries and have completely suppressed actual journalists like Julian Assange Mm -hmm. that now like, yeah. So like now we're like completely in the dark about all these like foreign wars that, that we're committing. Um, and uh, just like how the executive branch uh, stepped up to protect the business class, uh, so did the judicial branch. Can't forget about the Supreme Court. Check out our Supreme Court episode um, to see all their recent fuckery. Um, but uh, this was true even back right after the Civil War. Yep. Um, Howard Zinn writes, uh, the Supreme Court, despite its look of somber black-robed fairness, was doing its bit for the ruling elite. How could it be independent when its members were chosen by the president and ratified by the Senate? How could it be neutral between rich and poor when its members were often former wealthy lawyers and almost always came from the upper class? Early in the 19th century, the court laid the legal basis for the for a nash, national right, nationally regulated econom, economy by establishing federal control over interstate commerce and the legal basis for corporate capitalism by making the contracts sacred. In 1895, the the court interpreted the Sherman Act so as to make it harmless. The Sherman Act said a monopoly of sugar refinery was a monopoly in in manufacturing, not commerce, and so could not be regulated by Congress. So I think that's funny. So even when you get like, you know, a few upstart politicians who, you know, want to do the right thing and actually get a small, you know, a small good thing passed, like, hey, let's not have monopolies. Then you have the Supreme Court right there to swoop in and be like, actually, it doesn't quite say that. So, you know, let's do it this way. So it's it's just funny how, you know, rich people buy off everyone and then just to make sure they got all ends covered. Yeah, I think it was interesting, the Supreme Court, what they did with the 14th Amendment during this time as well. Um, which they basically started using and applying it to corporations instead of people, which is what it was meant to be for. But uh, the one uh, fourteen supposedly the m- amendment had been passed to protect protect Negro rights, but at the but of the Fourteenth Amendment cases brought to the Supreme Court between eighteen ninety and nineteen ten, nineteen dealt with Negroes and two hundred and eighty eight dealt with corporations. Well, corporations are people, all right. <laughs> McDonald's has feelings. Yeah. So when you go to Wendy's and you choose Wendy's over McDonald's, McDonald's cries a little bit. All right. So they're people. Like they have feelings and, and, and thoughts and they just want to be loved too. So I, I hug Amazon every <laughs> single day and, and I hug McDonald's and I and I hug Tesla and, and I hug um, Chase Bank and, and Bank of America. All wholesome, great people. Great people. Mm-hmm. Just like the corporate states of America. I mean, the the United States of America, (laughs) our republic. Um, I think it's also very, I I like how he pointed in this chapter, the role of um, education in an economic system. And Larnette and I were actually talking, this would be a good episode for, or a good idea for a future episode. Um, But talking about, you know, at least when I was growing up, you know, my parents told me, you know, you need to go get an education so you're a smart, well-rounded person who, you know, knows how to navigate the world. 
But really, and that and that's great. And obviously, I'm all about getting an education. But you got to understand that that's not the main goal of the ruling class within this country. The point is to create obedient workers. That's yep. the reason that mass education was formed in the first place. And uh, Howard Zinn writes, In the meantime, the spread of public school education enabled the learning of writing, reading, and arithmetic for a whole generation of workers, skilled and semi-skilled, who would be the literal labor force of the new industrial age. It was important that these people learn obedience to authority. A journalist observer of the schools in the mid-1890s wrote that, the unkindly spirit of the teacher is strikely, strikingly apparent. The pupils, being completely subjugated to their will, are silent and motionless. The spiritual atmosphere of the classroom is damp and chilly. And that, you know, started during this time, but it really fed through for a long time. Like, even my dad, who, you know, went to grade school in the late 60s, talked about how the nuns at his school would beat the kids and stuff. And to this day... Um, my my wife Megan in in her classroom she's completely gotten rid of of desks and having kids sit at desks they have different stations throughout the classroom that they move around in and and work at different end times and she always you know there's always like some parent or someone will come visit and be like oh my god you don't have like individual desks for them to sit like it's such like a foreign concept that like kids shouldn't just like you know sit down and shut up and and uh, be taught that way and it you know it really lasts and, and it really shows what you're trying to get with education you know it's not you know this this kind of glorified image of what we think education should be isn't you know what's happening i think i think it kind of reflects like back then and even still to this day just kind of like so the industrial revolution was happening back then the mechanization out of everything and the same thing was happening in the classroom where like raising these kids to be cogs in like a machine that whose purpose is to like create wealth for like a very few amount of people. Exactly. Well, well it kind of goes to that, uh, George Carlin, uh, quote, and he's like, uh, how, how education is. And I, I can only think about that when I was reading it, but you're like, you want people smart enough to run and maintain the machines, but not smart enough to question the machine. Like why are, mm-hmm. why, why do we have homeless people on the street? Why is there so many people struggling? Why don't we get like more sick days? Why do we have to work eight hour days? Why do we work five days a week? All these, all these you know, people. And that, and you know what's so funny? Like we had a moment like that. And I think that's why in this country um, with COVID, um, when the pandemic started, you know, they shut down everything. We didn't know how deadly um, the pandemic would be. Um, it's still like we're losing a thousand Americans every month. So it's still pretty bad. Um, because millions of people have already died. I thought it was like 10,000, but yeah. Yeah, um, but um, the thing is that when it first started and they did the lockdowns and stuff like that, we didn't really do a real lockdown anyway, but people started like fucking baking cookies, taking up hobbies, fucking people didn't have to go to work or they was working from home, and then people were like getting unemployment and they were like making money, money off of unemployment thanks to Bernie with that additional $600 a month that he was giving people because it was a fucking emergency. Um, people were like, I'm making more money um, sitting at home on my ass than I was going to the soul sucking, back breaking fucking job that's paying me like shit wages, minimum wage. Has another comedian said, Chris Rock was like, minimum wage is just the capitalist, or he didn't say capitalist, but just rich people paying you the littlest amount that's legally possible without them getting in trouble. And if they could pay you less, they would. And as we see unchecked capitalism, since our libertarians are like, the problem it is, is just the government's in bed with 
the government's just fucking everything up. We gotta just let business do everything. The government and business business have always been in bed with each other. They've always been fucking each other um, in an effort to fuck everybody else. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I I think I said it on the podcast already, but there was a, a joke that uh, paying paying your employees minimum wage is like an old man being into eighteen year olds. It's like we we know if it was legal, you would go lower. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it, it's the same fucking thing. So it, it really reminds me of that George Carlin quote and just how, yes, education is in this country. And even just when I got to college, you, and I'm pretty sure Steve and Brian, you probably heard people like, oh, I'm going to college because I need to get a degree because my mom and dad want me to get a good job. And it's just like, that's, that's, it's not that, like I want to learn about, you know, something besides my hometown and my family, but I just want to learn about the world and just learn a lot of different subjects and just be a well-rounded, well-learned individual. I mean, that's a high ideal of what university and, and college and education was supposed to be like about and what people you know who are you know convoluted and who would be like yes that's what it's all about being a well-rounded person but really it's just indoctrination because i remember as a little kid i used to have to say the pledge of allegiance in school and what is that indoctrinating you to the pledge of allegiance to the flag of the united states of america <laughs> loyalty oath and i am happy that is the one I do see some positive signs in society, and one of them is how many kids are starting to not stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I saw somebody made a TikTok video where it was like, I'm the only one in my class who's standing for the pledge. <laughs> and, you know, he was, like, proud of it, and then, like, everybody was roasting him. And it's like, yeah, it's because, like, nowadays, like, kids have the fucking internet, and they know how much fucking bullshit it is. And uh, Howard, Howard Zinn actually wrote about uh, a paragraph about it. He said... Uh, it was in the middle and late 19th centuries that high school developed as aids to the industrial system that history was widely um, that history was widely required in the curriculum to foster patriotism, loyalty oaths, teacher certification, and the requirement of citizenship were introduced to control both the educational and the political quality of teachers. Also, in the latter part of the century, school officials, not teachers, were given control over textbooks. Laws passed by the state barred certain kinds of textbooks. Idaho and Montana, for instance, forbade textbooks um, pro propagating political doctrines, and the Dakota Territory ruled that school libraries could not have partisan political pamphlets or books. And Damn, I have no more teaching the kids the origins of totalitarianism. Right. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right exactly. And, I, and, and you see that happening now, especially in like Texas and Florida. Like Florida has a huge teacher shortage shocker because they're like not allowing their teachers to like say the word gay and shit so and it, you see this it's a c consistent threat in american history this like attack on education because you know like Lernette said like george carlin said they want you to be obedient workers they don't want you to be well-rounded individuals who who question the system didn't didn't like the Koch brothers make like a ton of history textbooks for grade schools and stuff like that i'm pretty sure that they funded mm -hmm. it. they fund a lot of things <laughs> Um, all right. And during this time, so we kind of talked about the people controlling the systems and all, you know, all the different branches of government they paid off, how they work together. On the flip side of it, you have the workers who are actually creating all the wealth and creating all this change. 
And um, just like we uh, learned that and I talked about in our last episode, um, a lot of this wealth creation was generated by immigrant laborers. Um, Howard Zinn writes, there were five and a half million immigrants in the 1880s, four million in the in the 1890s, creating labor surpluses that kept wages down. The immigrants were more controllable, more helpless than native workers. They were culturally displaced at odds with one another, therefore useful as strike breakers. Often their children worked, uh, intensifying the problem of an oversized labor force and joblessness. In 1880, there were 1.1 million children under 16 at work in the United States. With everyone working long hours, families often became strangers to one another. A pants presser named Morris Rosenfield wrote a poem, My Boy, which became widely printed and recited. It said, I have a little boy at home, a pretty little son. I think sometimes that the world is mine, in him, my only one. Dawn, my labor drive, during dawn, my labor drives me forth. Tis night when I am free. A stranger I am to my child, and a stranger my child to me. And I just think that's so fucking sad. And that's. I think. Go ahead. That was the saddest. I think that was the saddest quote in this chapter, in my opinion. Still true today. It's so true today. I mean, my uh, sister-in-law just had a kid, and the insanely—I forgot how long it was exactly, maybe a week or two—but just the the incredibly fucking small a lot amount of time she was given off of work. And of course, U- United States is like the only industrialized country in the world without a uh, paid maternity and paternity leave. Um, it's just so fucking sad. Like you have this like fucking baby. And it's like you should be, you know, completely concerned about, like, you know, nurturing them and bringing them into the world. But it's not get your ass ass back to work, hop back up on that computer, lickety split, you know. It's get just, to the factory floor, you know, get get your fucking work. Uh, but right. that's kind of what I was getting at with the um, earlier point I was making about COVID. And I, I digressed on that point and got sidetracked. But when those lockdowns came and people start, you know, exploring the creative side, spending more time with family, cooking dinners at home, people start realizing that, like, you know, you. Most of our jobs, for one, are bullshit. Um, for two, uh, and I say every job is bullshit because, like, firemen are important, counselors are important, surgeons are important. Um, but for the most, for the most part, a lot of our labor, um, we, people could work at home. Uh, we could reorganize the whole entire labor industry um, where we don't even have one because we can have machines or robots do stuff, and we could just give everybody like a universal basic income and and fucking rent control and all this other stuff to make a society where like people can just explore their human human side and we saw during uh but also the reason they don't want that because on the souls the flip side during those um lockdowns and stuff like that you have one of the largest uh political uprisings in this nation's history um with the black lives matter protests of 2020 because a lot of people had more time to like see like holy shit the police are doing this like Black people would be like, yeah, we, we've been fucking telling you this for a long fucking time. <laughs> you know, the, the something that was created from the slave patrol is still fucking treating black people like they're slave patrol. So they don't want people realizing how they're getting sitting on their ass with idle time, as the old people say who are religious. Idle time is a devil's workshop. And the powers that be don't want idle time where they can people can sit on their hands and start, you know, being creative, but also thinking about how fucked the system is. So you got to get back to work. You got to be distracted. Here goes sports. Yep. So, and and so um, at this time, in response to the working conditions and how horrible everything was, um, socialism uh, was on the rise. And I think it's important. Oh, everyone, no. 
Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> dun, 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 <laughs> socialism. And Our podcast just blacks out. You yeah. don't hear us anymore. <laughs> Anchor's taking us off the fucking air, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what I've learned from reading history and, you know, growing up in America in the, you know, the, the, the belly of the beast how demonized communism and socialism and all these things were. And what I've realized more and more is that it's been demonized because it's all about workers' rights and, and, and workers getting a better life for themselves. So that's why. So anytime you see somebody in power or see a talking head on the media talking shit about socialism, socialist countries, anything like that, they're just propagandists doing the, 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 the work of the business class to make, you know, to keep suppressing workers and 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 this demonization we need to start you know i think it's they they they're trying to re up it cuz they're always constantly you know demonizing cuba or venezuela acting like you know their countries aren't horrible shambles when really that's not the case in many ways their countries are a lot better than the us for example there's no homeless people in cuba they they export more doctors to you know work in different countries than any other country they just cured lung uh, type of lung cancer um so we American workers need to start waking up to this fact and, and don't let them, you know, turn social or it, socialism is already turned into a dirty word. Um, but we need to fight back against that and, and read the real history of what actually happens. And then you'll understand exactly why they demonize it, because for a while there socialists and communists um, uh, groups in America got very powerful and they really threatened the establishment. And that's why we got all the good things we did during the New Deal and why the country um, really improved there for a lot of people for a little bit um, was because of these movements. And um, Howard Zinn writes, um, perhaps it was the recognition that day-to-day combat was not enough, that fundamental change was needed, which stimulated the growth of revolutionary movements at this time. The Socialist Labor Party formed in 1877 was a tiny and torn by internal arguments, but it had some influence in organizing unions among foreign workers. In New York, Jewish socialists organized and put out a newspaper. In Chicago, German revolutionaries, along with native-born radicals, um, formed social revolutionary clubs. Um, In Chicago, the new International Workers' People Association had 5,000 members, published newspapers in five languages, organized mass demonstrations and parades, and through its leadership in strikes was a powerful influence in the 22 unions that made up the Central Labor Union of Chicago. There was difference in theory among all these revolutionary groups, but the theorists were often brought together by the practical need of labor struggles, and there were many in the mid-1880s. So just another reason why, you know, socialism is bad. All dare those peasants organize themselves and, and demand a fair shake in this system. Yep. They should just be happy that the benevolent rich people are giving them the crumbs that they give them. See? <laughs> I think it's also like uh, a lot of politicians and stuff try to like offer solutions that capitalism has created by like doing more capitalistic things. Mm-hmm. Whereas like socialism would actually be like a different um, like there's this quote, uh, the workers can therefore expect no help from any capitalistic party in their struggle against the existing system. They must achieve their liberation by their own efforts. As in former times, a privileged class never surrenders its tyranny. Neither can it be expected that the capitalists of this age will give up their rulership without being forced to do it. 
I think it's also important to point out because um, so, the word socialism has been bastardized in this country to mean that's when the government does stuff and when the government pays for things. But that's not what socialism is. Socialism is when the workers control the means of production. So that means instead of the company being you know, owned by the board or one CEO, it's owned by the workers within that company. And I don't know about you guys, but that sounds fucking great to me. And I hope that happens to every company in the entire world. And the funny thing about the United States when we talk socialism and the government doing stuff, the government does stuff all the fucking time. That's the point of a fucking government. That's why people organize to create governments. Right, right, To right. fucking do shit. What the, was the government just there just to like be omnipotent? Like it's... It's just out there. Like we don't. Then that. Then we don't need a fuck government. Then so uh, government socialism. The government going to tell you what to do. It's like the government tells me what to do. I can't fucking drive my car without this stupid little plastic card that's my driver's license. If I fucking don't have that, I get fucking pulled over or go to jail. So like that's the government telling me what doing stuff, telling me what to fucking do. We don't see people rallying against fucking driver's license. Oh gosh, that's socialism right there. That's. But maybe it's a good thing we have fucking driver's license. Because I would like the people on the road to know how to fucking drive. And maybe we should do better drivers in this country because people drive like shit, especially here in Atlanta. But that, I digress <laughs> to that point. We sh- probably shouldn't even really use cars yeah, too much Yeah, we at should all. just have mass transit. <laughs> oh, know, we exactly. should. We definitely cars, should have mass transit. Cars are transit. fucking stupid. Yeah. But, you know, we're not going to do that because that's, that's more socialism. And why would we pay for public transportation? Well, they have fucking high-speed rails in China and Japan that get to, like, major cities in, like, 30 minutes. We could do the same thing here. And it's like... No, we can't do that. That's socialism. You need just buy electric vehicles, y'all. <laughs> That's yeah, a buy a Tesla. Tesla. That's what Pete Buttigieg says. I, I forgot the exact amount of time, but they were talking about how if you put high speed rails across the United States, like how you could hop on a train in Chicago and get to New York in like, you know, whatever, an hour, hour and a half, some shit like that. And it's just like, God, all the awesome fucking things we could have if the if the people in this country weren't so damn you know propagandized and fucking stupid about shit like this. Um, but um, you touched uh, you said uh, touched on it earlier in that, but talking about the eight hour workday, and I think don't think a lot of people in this country know that that was something we had to workers in this country had to fight for because it was for a while there it was just work from sunrise to sundown six days a week, um, only getting off for the Sabbath. Um, so Howard Zinn writes about th- that struggle in this chapter. Um, by the spring of 1886, the movement for an eight-hour day had grown. On May 1st, the American Federation of Labor, now five years old, called the nationwide strikes wherever the eight-hour day was refused. Terence Powderly, head of the Knights of Labor, opposed the strike, saying that employers and employees must first be educated on the eight-hour day. But assemblies of the Knights made plans to strike. The Grand Chief chief of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers opposed the eight-hour day, saying two hours less work means two two hours more loafing about the corners and two hours more of drinking. But rail workers did not agree, and support for the eight-hour um, movement growed. Um, so 350,000 workers in 11,000 establishments all over the country went on strike. In Detroit, 11,000 workers marched for an eight, in an eight-hour day parade. In New York, 25,000 formed a torchlit procession along Broadway, headed by 3,400 members of the Bakers Union. In Chicago, 40,000 workers striked, and 45,000 were granted a shorter working day to prevent them from striking. Um, every railroad worker in Chicago stopped running, and most of the industries in Chicago were paralyzed. The stockyards were closed down. 
And I think that's so it, – it shows, you know – sometimes strikes work sometimes they don't in this case they work so we should you know and, and it's we also you know I, i'm excited to see that a lot of places are starting to unionize and that's what we have to do to get these kind of numbers you know you don't get three hundred fifty thousand people to strike you know overnight there's a lot of organization that goes into that um and that's so what we have to start doing now because honestly things are more unequal now than they were during this time and I think we're just we've been so pacified with technology and propaganda now that you don't really see the movement and the resistance that you did to back then. Um, but things are only going to get worse because the powerful just keep taking more and more and more until we stop them. Yeah. And capitalism is literally destroying the planet. Like climate change is here. Um, the fact that I you know, was on vacation in, in, in the West Coast in Baja, California, and that they had two storms back to back. And and mad, massive flooding in Indonesia, and twenty twenty you had those crazy fires in Australia, um, the the Pakistan, Pakistan, yeah, Pakistan, like a, six of the country is homeless, two thousand people because, and counting are dead for thousand year floods. Hell, I was in West Virginia like in twenty sixteen, and there was a thousand year flood that happened, and so these like major thousand year, once a generation weather events are basically becoming just normal weather events now with climate change and it's only going to get worse and it's not some far off like oh it's going to be you know in the future when i'm old and dead no it's, it's happening now like it's happening now with uh, climate change and that's and that quote about um the whole eight hour workday was hilarious I mean, like they have more time to just go get drunk and just like not do anything and not be productive because that's that's so american like this whole you have to be productive and I remember at my old job, um, I had like coworkers who were arguing about one night, like so and so sends emails at like eleven o'clock at night. Well, so and so sends emails at one o'clock in the morning. Like, why? Like, why the fuck are you sending emails? Yeah, this isn't your company. They can fire you any any moment now. So anybody who's out there who listens to podcasts, if you work somewhere, don't fucking give them one hundred and ten percent. Like, they'll, they'll if it's not your company that you're running and your small business. Don't give them all that. They they can fire you and replace you just like that. Fuck it. Like, I think give all y'all. I think that. Yeah, I think that also speaks to like another myth in American culture that like the only way to motivate someone is to pay them or like to Mm -hmm. either either to hit them with a stick or give them a carrot, (laughs) and that's like the only mode of motivation. But plenty of scientific studies have shown that that's like one of the weakest forms of motivation. Yeah. And, and and I think that just shows the way that from years of propaganda, how this like slavery mentality ha- that exists within the general population of the United States that like, you know, we need masters to, to be ordering us around. Otherwise, we're all just, you know, like lazy bums and stuff. And it's like it just completely takes away all your agency as a human being and like makes you, you know, like a willing participant in this system that is destroying you on every level and destroying the planet. That's why you see. That's why you see a lot of, uh, like a lot of wealthy people who become like good artists and stuff, and it's because they didn't have to labor every minute of the day. They had the free time to like explore those different avenues of life. Oh, exactly. I I actually just recently read an article about that about how um, a good chunk of um, famous musicians and artists in the country they they did like a study of like you know uh the the economic background of famous artists and how a good you know majority of them came from more wealthy at least upper middle class backgrounds because 
it takes time to hone your craft and to work on it. And, and poor people don't have as much, you know, of course there are the few, you know, poor people who are so insanely gifted, they, they can make it no matter what. But a lot of people, they, they have to work on their craft and work, have free time to work on their art um, that you simply, you know, don't have that free time or have the resources. I mean, anyone who's an artist in any capacity knows how expensive it is, um, you know, for supplies to create art and stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it takes that, that free time. And, and that's what I think is kind of, you know, missing in a capitalist system. Capitalism really kills creativity. And I think about so many people when they're asked, you know, what would you do? Um, if you didn't have, you know, if money was no object and so many of them would go into some sort of artistic endeavor. And I think about how, you know, more enriched our lives would be if there were more artists, you know, um, creating things that, you know, and part and people participating in things i think it's kind of you know interesting like I, I went to a concert on friday and i was just thinking about how you know it's interesting that we have like you know this one artist and then literally tens of thousands of people watching this one person where i think if we didn't live in a capitalist system and we had more free time and things there would be more artists so rather than having this one person performing for tens of thousands you know you'd have you know, a bunch of people with smaller crowds all, you know, attending and kind of more of a communal way of like consuming art, right? Because just just like, you know, with capitalism, with business, how like very few people rise to the top, that creates that situation in, in every field, including, you know, you know, music and art and things. Um, yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, next week, um, we're going to get into the Haymarket riot and then the Pullman strike. And I think that'll be perfect timing because it does look like um, it's very possible um, within the coming weeks that both UPS workers and railway um, workers may go on strike. Um, so I think it's a perfect time to discuss what happened uh, the last time there was a major railway strike in the country. And also um, the Haymarket uh riot or protest or whatever however you want to describe it um is a very important part of american history um and for those who are living in chicago very close to home hopefully uh uh the railroad workers don't get quite as brutalized and murdered like they did back then <laughs> yeah yeah right uh, be careful though i mean we, we are talking about jim Crow joe so he he loves a good uh-huh. he loves a quash a good uprising uh-huh. why do you think he wants a hundred thousand more cops on the street Got to put down these peasants' rebellions. <laughs> Me and Steve were dying laughing because one of our friends is a railway conductor, so he might go on strike, but he also is in the National <laughs> Guard. So we were cracking up that he's going to be sent to beat up himself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I uh, I was talking to him, and he uh, confirmed that he would not show up for duty in that scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Or he would show up and then he would just go join the protesters. Yeah. <laughs> just stay at home and punch yourself in the face. <laughs> Beat yourself over your head with the club. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that, that episode will come up next. We're going to record that real soon. So we'll get probably get these episodes out back to back. Um, I know on the, you know, for our listeners, we say bi-weekly. Um, but, you know, Lauren and I, we try and get as many of these episodes out as we can. We love, uh, you know, recording them and things, but it does take work to do a little bit of research and edit them and things. So sometimes we might not stick to an exact schedule. Um, but if you guys would start listening more, we could hire somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, please, please leave a review on Google Anchor. 
uh, Apple Podcasts uh, for more people can listen to us. I know the market is saturated with different types of podcasts, but um, this is the best way we can share ideas, uh, especially in uh, in the technological world. Um, so we can re- have the potential to reach uh, not just hundreds of, but thousands of people. So we need the folks who listen to this show. Just write a review. Just take five minutes out your day. Say you like it. It doesn't have to be a long uh, speech or anything like that or a paragraph or two will do or just even a couple of sentences. Just, uh, we'll appreciate that a whole lot. So please, please leave it. And then... And then share us with one of your conservative relatives. To piss them off. <laughs> yeah, just just to piss them off. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and also if you got you know listeners, if there's any topic you want to discuss, like I love having guests on, and um, you know a lot of people hit me up like on the side and like talk about the episodes and stuff, but I'd love to have people on to discuss things, or even if you listen once and completely disagreed with everything we said and want to talk about that, I think it'd be fun to have like some debate episodes. Um. Not that, that'd be fun. You, you know, yeah, that'd be fun. I, I don't want to turn it into completely a debate show because I do see sometimes how, I don't know, debates can be used for entertainment without actually gaining any ground on, you know, or actually doing anything. So I'm not all about that, but I would love, you know, to, I love have a civil conversation I, with someone who yeah, disagrees and, and, with us. Not yeah, just and, I, and I love challenging other. ideas. I mean, the reason I came to have the beliefs I did now is because I was, you know, learning about how people challenged ideas. I challenged ideas within my own life, um, and it, it's always rewarding. So I think it's a good thing to do. And um, you know, everybody needs to like learn things. So it, it's it's always good to to question things, as we say. Um, so like Larnette said, don't forget to follow us, uh, write a review, give us a like if you like the podcast. Um, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share all the articles and stuff from our episodes. Um, you can find us at Q culture, Q U E C U L T U E T T U R E. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone for listening and remember to question everything, everything. Any views or opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to Brian Lornette and Steve and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that Brian Lornette and Steve may or may not be associated with in any professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.